So we have been going through, we just started a, a series on the letter of, uh, the letter to the churches, seven churches in the Asia Minor, which is now modern day uh, Turkey. Uh, this is a letter that Jesus told the Apostle John to, to write while he was exiled in the island of Patmos. So these letters are coming from, as we have been learning, this is coming from the Lord himself. Okay, so although John is the writer, Jesus is the author. Um, and this Lord, he calls himself the one who walks among these seven churches. And the letters address uh, particular issues uh, on each of these churches, whether to rebuke them, to encourage them, to warn them, to instruct them, or to simply push them forward uh, for his glory. It tells us, and I'm just, you know, summarizing what we have been learning here. It tells us that the Lord truly knows what is really going on uh, in each church and what is about to happen in these churches. And so while this is an encouragement or a, a, a message to the churches, specifically to those seven churches, it, they also serve as a reminder for the modern church, even for us today. And today... We are going to look into the second letter, which is a letter to the church, the believers in Smyrna. Smyrna. This is the shortest of the seven letters in Revelation. It is short, as, you have, as we have heard in the uh, scripture reading, because you will notice it is lacking some of the things that were mentioned in other letters, which I will get to uh, in a bit. But what is not said, even though it is short, this, this letter, what is not said of Smyrna is actually very telling. You study what is said, you will also study what is not said as we look into this passage. Let me just give a background as we have been doing since last week. Just a background of what this church is all about. Just a cultural, historical background. So Smyrna, is, uh, Smyrna is, was situated in about 50 to 60 kilometers or 40 miles if you're American, <laughs> uh, north of Ephesus. Okay, so it's north of Ephesus. And just like Ephesus, it is a prosperous harbor city. It is a beautiful city. At the time of this letter, Smyrna uh, was a thriving port or harbor that is exceedingly pro-government. They are exceedingly pro-government. They support the Roman em emperor all the way, all the way. They support the empire so much that they practice emperor worship. That's not unusual at that time. But they are foremost, they are foremost in emperor worship. So because Smyrna is a, a harbor city, a lot of trade is coming in and out. There's one commodity that you might find in Smyrna, uh, which is a hardened tree sap. And you might be familiar with this. It's called myrrh. Myrrh. Okay. It is used as perfume. 
or medicine or even embalming uh, a dead body. And it, it remember one of the gifts that the infant Jesus received, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and I just find it interesting that you give a baby an embalming product, right? As if, as if it's very prophetic, right? That uh, this, this product is preparing Jesus for what is about to happen to him. So this, this price commodity you can find in Smyrna, hence their name. That's why they're called Smyrna, similar to myrrh. So just like this price commodity, Smyrna has a history of being crushed. Because if you have myrrh, you have to crush it. So you will bring out its scent, its, its product. Smyrna has a long history of being crushed. Around 600 BC, before this letter, uh, Smyrna was destroyed and burned to the ground. But it was rebuilt by Alexander. In the 1400s, the city was again sieged by the Turks. The city was devastated but rebuilt again. Recently, in the 1920s, during the Greek and Turkish War, Smyrna was once again burned along with its inhabitants. So I saw a documentary. People are uh, swimming to the Aegean Sea. While they're on their way to the Aegean Sea, they're, wa they're walking on the road full of corpse. It was a massacre. The, that burning of Smyrna was intended first and foremost to, to, to push away Greek residents, particularly Christians. But today, today, even if that happened in the 1920s, today Smyrna is still alive. Surprisingly, compared to the other seven churches, it's still alive today. It is a, a, a thriving city called Izmir. There's a city in Turkey now called Izmir. It's the same city with a good number of Christians even today. And as some would say, it has the highest concentration of Christians in, among the Turkish cities. And this is interesting because, as many uh, of you would know, uh, Turkey is predominantly Islamic country. So for, for a, a, a city who has a rich history of being crushed, to have a, a high concentration of Christians uh, speaks a lot. Right, And so this letter stands to be an encouragement for the first century Smyrna, even for the 21st century Izmir. And here's the encouragement that Jesus has for them, even for those who are inhabiting that place right now. That the Lord knows their true condition. Something that may, they may not be aware of. Second, that the Lord is their true comfort. More than any tangible reward, the Lord's identity, who the Lord is for them, is the source of their comfort. And here's what we, as a church, can learn from the Lord's letter to Smyrna. That when we think about the poor and persecuted church, 
we need to remember that the poor and persecuted church are blessed. And it will do us well if we can learn from them, appreciate them, and thank the Lord for them. It would do us well to pray, Lord, teach us to be like Smyrna. And so let's look at that. Let's look at those two things. How the Lord knows our true condition or the condition of the poor and persecuted church. So let me break down this condition uh, according to Jesus uh, into two things. One is physical, the other is spiritual. Okay? You will see this in the text. The, their condition is described physically and spiritually. Both are real, but the other has more weight and something that they may not be aware of. So obviously we can see the physical condition that they are poor and persecuted. And the Lord is fully aware of this. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. So the use of the word tribulation there is very telling because uh, it's not just the usual discomfort. It's not your typical difficulty. It's not just a challenge. It's not just a problem. It's a tribulation. This is a severe kind of difficulty. They were persecuted by the Roman Empire, obviously, because they refused to worship the emperor as lord. That makes them enemies of the government. They are red-tagged. Red-tagged sila. But they are not only receiving persecution from the Roman government, they also receive, interestingly, persecution from supposedly their allies, but they're receiving uh, persecution from the Jews, from the ethnic Jews. Let me just give you know, a, a little background to, for this to make more sense. You know, just like in Ephesus, there is an established Jewish community in Smyrna. There's a Jewish community in this beautiful harbor city. Even though this is a Roman province, there's a, there's a good number of Jewish community there. There's even a synagogue there. This ethnic Jewish community has a legal exemption from the government so they can practice their religion. Remember, if you're in a Roman province, you have to worship the, the emperor, but the Jewish community was able to furnish, to, uh, to have uh, an, except, an exemption so they can uh, you know, worship uh, Yahweh. All right? So they can freely gather in their synagogues. They, can they are recognized by the society. They can live freely as ethnic Jews and not fear for their lives. However, they don't want to have anything to do with Christians. They don't want to have anything to do with Christians. We're happy with our Jewish community and these people who say that Jesus is the Messiah, we don't want to have anything to do with them. So what did they do? They slander the Christians. What, what do you do when you slander someone? You not only chismis, you give false information. You accuse them falsely. 
So they make up slanderous stories. You know these people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah? They drown babies. Because they think baptism is like that. You know these believers of Jesus being the Messiah, being the Christ? They practice cannibalism. Because when they gather, they say, we drink the blood of Christ. We eat the, the body of Jesus. So these people, they eat flesh. They eat human flesh. They're cannibals. You know these Christian believers? They're planning rebellion. Because they only recognize Jesus as Lord, they are a threat to the emperor. We need to get rid of them. And so because of that, Jesus calls this ethnic Jewish community in their, in their synagogue, a synagogue of Satan. And being persecuted by Romans and ethnic Jews had a real impact on their economic status, obviously. All right? Which made them, uh, which made them poor. They were poor Christians. Ironically, they are poor in a very rich city. This is a rich city, but there are poor people in it. And if you're going to do a demographics, a high percentage of poverty in Smyrna would be Christians. But they were not poor because they were lazy or uneducated. Right? Keep that in mind. They were poor not because they were lazy or un uneducated. They were poor because they were Christians. It is not their lack of faith that has made them poor, which is typically the message of prosperity gospel. Oh, kaya wala ka masyadong opportunity because you lack faith. Yeah. This is quite the opposite. They were poor exactly because of their faith. They were poor because their faith in Christ has more weight than comfortable living. They have made conscious decision to stand firm in their faith in Jesus, and that meant not getting proper employment. That meant missing out on business opportunities. That meant being discriminated. That meant being fired. It meant saying no to lucrative deals. It meant you are not able to enter the agora or the public spaces. That meant a lot for your economic status. And the Lord knows exactly what is going on with them. The Lord knows exactly all these things that are happening to them. So from an earthly perspective, these poor and persecuted church has no value to society. Right? From an earthly perspective, if you look at this community who has no position in authority, uh, no business in society, they're of no value. Of no value. They cannot have any contribution in the global church. They're a burden to the global church. They're a burden to the kingdom of God because they're poor and persecuted. They cannot contribute anything. 
But the Lord knows their true condition, something that we and everyone else may not be aware of. In close parenthesis in our text, in our Bible, it says, but you are rich. You are rich. You know, I want us to take a moment to consider the weight of those words. Keep in mind, this is Jesus' words, and his words are not empty. When he says something, it's true, right? When he says something, it's true. Let me give an example. Let me give a Lord of the Rings example. Uh, in, in the third uh, installment uh, in The Return of the King, opening scene, uh, Saruman is on top of his tower, and Gandalf said to Saruman, because defiant pa si Saruman at that time, eh, uh, he's saying, you know, I still have power, I can do a lot of things. You know what Gandalf just said? Saruman, your staff is broken. And right at that moment, the staff was broken. That's the power of words of this wizard. Think about the power of the creator of the universe. So when Jesus says, you are rich, it is not mere flattery. It is not just a, a, you know, someone saying, you know, Re responding to, to a lady that says, am I getting fat? <laughs> and, the, and the guy would say, hindi naman. Sexy mo nga eh. This is not mere flattery. It is not pa consuelo. He's not just saying, oh, I know you're poor, but actually you're rich naman. This is not consolation. It is their true condition. And so when Jesus says something, it is true. So when Jesus says they are rich, they are really rich. Keep that in mind. When Jesus says they are rich, they really are rich despite appearances. And with that in mind, how rich do you think Smyrna, the believers in Smyrna, really is? How rich do you think they are? Think of someone you think is crazy rich. Think of someone you think is crazy rich. Crazy rich? You have someone in mind? Super rich. What I have in mind is Jeff Bezos. Are you familiar? Are, are you, do you know Jeff Bezos? Super rich. Imagine if Jeff Bezos was impressed by your wealth. Jeff Bezos says, hey, you're super rich. If a guy that's crazy rich is impressed by your riches, what kind of wealth do you actually have? Imagine the king of the universe saying you are rich. How rich do you think you are? You know, these poor and persecuted believers in Smyrna are far richer than their prosperous city. 
They're far richer than their rich neighbors. They're far richer than the Roman emperor. And knowing their true spiritual condition gives them the confidence and dignity, something that the society does not give them. And I, I can help but imagine when Jesus was talking up on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I can't help but imagine Jesus is also thinking about the believers in Smyrna in the future when he says these things, Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, I imagine the Christians in Smyrna, after hearing those words, you are rich, it would light up their faces. It would make them even more generous even though they are poor. And this was true for Polycarp. Polycarp is, uh, was a bishop of Smyrna, and I will mention him again towards the end. Here's a, a quick story. When guards came to Polycarp's house, to arrest him, to bring him to court, he opened his home. He welcomed the guards. He prepared food for them. He made a feast for them. His only request was for them to wait for him to finish praying. You know, that's someone who understands that he's so rich, despite appearances. Christian friends, what would you consider to be a tribulation in your life today? Your internet speed is not 100 Mbps. You get stuck in traffic three times a week. You're unable to budget 1,000 pesos in a week. What would you consider a tribulation in your life today? What kind of riches truly capture your heart? Is it the physical riches or is it the spiritual riches? I'm not saying earthly treasures are bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if earthly treasures are all that we have, then we are poor in the truest sense. What profits a man when he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? And in contrast to that, Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God of Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Despite appearances of being poor and persecuted, this church is rich, rich beyond our understanding. So amid this persecution and poverty, the Lord gives this, uh, these two commands for the believers in Smyrna. Ano yung commands na yon? Number one, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Number two, be faithful unto the point of death. That's the, 
instruction of Jesus. But I want you to pay attention to what is absent in this letter. What is absent in this letter compared to last week, Ephesus? You know what's absent? There's no judgment. There's no criticism. There's no criticism in this church. Jesus is not calling them out. Two more things that's absent here. You notice God did not spare them from affliction. God did not remove the affliction. And third, God did not make them wealthy, earthly speaking. And ironically, those last two things, almost always in our prayers. To be spared from troubles and persecution and tribulation. To experience financial blessing. But the Lord did not give that to a church that's seemingly without judgment or criticism. You know, sometimes we even think that Christianity works this way. As long as I'm staying faithful to God, as long as I go to church, plus points if I get more involved in ministry, as long as I attend all gatherings, as long as I'm listening to my favorite preachers online, I will be spared from difficulties of life. As long as I'm doing all these things, I'm being a faithful Christian uh, in, in all its uh, essence, God will bless me from time to time. And so when that happens, you feel like God owes you a favor. God, I'm doing all these things. I'm staying faithful, but you did not do your end. You are not faithful to do your part of the bargain. Why are you not blessing me financially? Clearly, that is not what's happening in Christians in Smyrna, right? These are faithful people, and yet God did not spare them from affliction, and God did not give them wealth. Let me paint a picture of what this looks like, this, this command to, for them to be faithful. Here's what staying faithful unto the, unto the end, faithful unto death, could look like for Christians in Smyrna. This is just a hypothetical uh, scenario. Let's say every week about 18 Smyrnians gather in someone's home. But on this particular Sunday, only 15 were present. Instead of 18, only 15 came in. So the elder asked, where's so-and-so? Where's this guy? Where, where is his wife? What happened to this guy? And one guy silently says, I saw them. They were taken by the Roman guards. They are in prison. So the room goes silent. They know what going to prison meant. If you are faithful to Jesus, you don't, go, you don't get out of prison alive. 
And our passage warns them that the devil will throw some of them into prison and the tribulation will be for 10 days. 10 days in prison, 10 days of tribulation, yeah. easy. You know, it could be very well a symbolic number of days. It could just mean a short period of time. It is short, I believe, because after that period of tribulation, the next thing they will experience is to be with their Savior. After tribulation, glory. So these believers know what going to prison means, but they continue to worship the Lord anyway. They say a short prayer for those who are in prison. They sing a hymn, for example. They sing, oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Next week, only 12 people show up. They know what that meant. Because no one misses the Lord's Day gathering. No one misses the Lord's Day gathering because they were Poyat from Netflix. Sorry. <laughs> but they continue to worship the Lord anyway, even though there were people missing. They say a short prayer again for those who are missing, they sing a hymn. It is well, it is well with my soul. The following week, there's just seven of them. They already know what happened to the rest. They might even have seen it. They probably just escaped. They are in trouble. They are in hiding. But they worship the Lord anyway. They pray together as if it's going to be their last time together. They sing a hymn together, probably the last hymn that they will sing together. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. And they will continue to do that until they are thrown into prison, tortured, or burned at the stake. Friends, that's what being faithful unto death will look like for them. That's what Jesus is calling them to do. You know, during that period that they are being faithful unto death, there are a few things that they will not bother at all. They will not be preoccupied with church growth strategies. They will not be concerned of they will not be consumed of the bigness or the smallness of the church. That's what I mean with church growth strategies. You know, because you know, there are communities, there are Christian communities that make it a point that only we are only fruitful when we grow, 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 right? So the our goal is to make it big, make it big, make it big. But I'm also saying they are not preoccupied with the smallness of the church. Because some might think being small is a virtue. Or you don't want to be a big church. You, you, you think that you know, a small church is a, a more biblical church. You know, the kingdom of God comes in different shapes and sizes, by the way. Small, medium, large, mega, giga. 
they're not preoccupied with that. Another thing that they're not preoccupied as they are being faithful unto death, they're not preoccupied by petty differences among believers. They're just faithful to the Lord. They're just faithful unto death. And why would they do that? What would motivate them to stay faithful unto death? You know, they can find comfort in the Lord's promise to them. What is the Lord's promise? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Our last verse, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And second death, as we see in towards the end of Revelation, is, is, uh, is hell. So the idea here of you know, receiving a crown of life, the, the idea, the picture is a victorious person in a competition, like running a race or a marathon. And during that time, the victors and champions of a competition, let's say a race, they do not receive a medal. Right? The, today, we, we give medals to people. Instead of receiving a medal, they receive a crown or a wreath. And I would think believers in Smyrna may not have received any type of crown their whole lives. They do not receive that. So for them to hear that as we are faithful unto death, Jesus will give us a crown of life. So they look at their tribulation, the persecution, the poverty as all part of the race. And at the finish line, they see the crown of life. A life that is completely different from the one that they are experiencing. And if that is what's waiting at the finish line, they will keep running the race and they will look at the finish line not with fear, not with dread, but with joyful anticipation. They will keep running because what they see towards the finish line is the crown of life. If that's the only crown that they will see receive in their lifetime, that's all they need. They take to heart what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and as, let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what made them happy towards the finish line? The worst that, that their persecutors can do is to end their lives. The worst that their enemies can do against them is to end their lives. But what it does is to simply bring them closer to their Savior. How can you not be happy with that? Lastly, the comfort and motivation for these poor and persecuted Christians in Smyrna is anchored not only on the promise, but more importantly, on the promise giver. Not only on the promise of crown of life and being spared from the second death, 
But this comfort is coming from the promise giver himself. Who is this promise giver? Our text says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In other words, the one who's speaking to them has the first and final say over their lives. He is the one who suffered. He is the one who stayed faithful until the end. He is the one who was raised to life. The believers in Smyrna can look to Jesus for perfect comfort because he is the one who truly knows what it means to be poor, what it means to be persecuted. He can completely identify with them. This is their savior who knows exactly, not just mentally, but in, in all his humanity, knows what it means to be, pu to be poor and persecuted. Remember, his crucifixion was a collaborative persecution between Romans and Jews against him. He truly experienced persecution all his life unto death. He is the one truly faithful until the end. He suffered with those who suffer, and he suffered for those who experience earthly suffering. And he is the one who came to life so that those who suffered for his name's sake will also come to life. You know, similar message of the gospel here was written by Paul to the uh, Christians in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Friends, Paul is not talking about earthly riches here. Paul is talking about being rich the same way Smyrna, a poor and persecuted church, is actually rich. That's their comfort in a Savior who completely identifies with them. Let me end with the story of, of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. So Polycarp, he's a historical figure. He's not a, a legend. He's an actual person. Polycarp was a disciple of uh, the Apostle John himself. So he heard stories about Jesus from those who lived with him. Polycarp learned directly first from first-hand witnesses of Jesus' teachings and even heard the stories of Jesus' resurrection from the apostles. He was probably in his late 20s when this letter was read in Smyrna. He's, he's there in Smyrna when this letter was read to them. And I believe he took this to heart because he lived a long and faithful life. He lived a faithful life as an overseer of Smyrna. He was a faithful uh, overseer, not just of Smyrna, but he, you know, he communicated with other churches. In fact, there's a, an epistle to Ephesians that he is the author. So he wrote letters to other churches as well, 
from Rome, Philippi, and other, other pastors and elders. He's a faithful overseer and Christian and believer in Smyrna. And in his old age, as I mentioned earlier, guards came in to, to question him. So eventually he, he, he went. So in this court, this proconsul uh, was talking to him and the goal is for him to renounce his loyalty uh, to Jesus Christ. But the proconsul looked at this old man and said, oh man, it's, it's difficult to, to, to put this old man to death. He's a genuine, gentle guy. So this proconsul negotiates with, with uh, Polycarp. He says, you know, swear, and I will set at liberty, just reproach Christ. He's saying, you know, just reproach Christ, just renounce him, I will give you your freedom. I will no longer bother you, just renounce Christ. Polycarp declared very famously, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul said to him, You know, I have wild beasts at hand. I will unleash them to you unless you repent of this Jesus. Again, Polycarp answered, Call them then. Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what, that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. Of course, at this point, the proconsul is insulted. He's angry and he makes this final threat. I will throw you into the fire. I will throw you into the fire. Polycarp's final words, he says, You threaten me with a fire that burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring on what you will. Bring on what you will. You know, friends, a believer that is secured in his union with Christ says to the persecutions and tribulations coming his life, bring it on. And Polycarp, right there, was martyred by being burned at the stake. He stayed faithful until the end. Friends, we may not be able to empathize completely with the church in Smyrna because I think it's safe to say that we are not persecuted nor poor in the same way. We enjoy air-conditioned facility. We have space to gather together, not afraid of our lives. But I pray that this stirs us to remember the plight of those who are in tribulation, to pray for them, to appreciate them, to see that they have big contribution to the global church. 
And if the Lord wills for us to go through the same tribulation, consider it a badge of honor and say, it is well with my soul and be faithful until the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your sustaining grace to the believers in Smyrna in the first century. What an amazing church. Lord, teach us more to be like them. Lord, we confess that we have been comfortable in our lives, that we have forgotten the truly essential matters. Forgive us, Lord, for turning our eyes towards earthly, physical riches when we have forgotten true spiritual riches. Lord, prepare us in times that you will cause us to experience affliction and tribulation that we may be faithful until the end. Teach us, Lord, to find comfort in your promise, but more importantly, teach us, Lord, to find comfort in our Savior who knows what it means to be poor, to be persecuted, to suffer, to die for our sin so that we will no longer experience a second death. We praise you for this joy and for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.